Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, and I'm with a friend, um, Dave Mulder, who's a professor of education at Dort University, and my favorite blogger, because I love reading his blogs, and he's really the one that introduced me to this whole massive world um, in the edu Twitter sphere, you know, a few years ago. So I've delved into that world, and, and I appreciate Dave because of that. But Dave's podcast that he did with me a couple of years ago on No More Crappy Homework is the number one listened to podcast on digital education. So it's it's fun being back with you, Dave. But I want to go back to that, right? I want to go back to No More Crappy Homework. I, and I'm just going to ask you a broad, open-ended question. Like, are we any better? <laughs> that, that's a great question. But hey, thanks for having me back, by the way. it's It's been a while. So, you know... It's interesting. I, I keep talking to practitioners in K-12, and this is one of those questions that seems like it's a hot button topic and it's just not going away, right? Um, what, what is the right kind of work that we should be assigning to students? And man, I think that's probably a perennial question that when, when we frame it that way, right? Like what, what is the right kind of work to assign for students? And my whole shtick around no more crappy homework is I see so many teachers. And I'm pointing the finger at myself, first of all, right? I was this teacher when I taught middle school that, that we're, we're doing the best we can, right? So I want to approach this charitably and, and recognize that everyone's doing the best they can. But a lot of times I think I assigned homework that I just didn't think about what I was actually asking students to do. And so much of it was low value um, you know, things because I feel like I have to somehow justify the grade that I'm giving to, to, to the kids. So parents don't come back at me angry later on and say, well, how, why did my kid do so poorly in your class? And, well, I can justify it by padding things, by giving them some, you know, lightweight assignment that doesn't really matter. And it's not actually helping them learn. So I guess that's kind of my, my big wondering when we're, when we're talking about what makes a high value assignment for students. Well, it's the sort of thing where they're going to have the opportunity to engage deeply with, with the concepts that they're learning about, and they're going to have the opportunity to rehearse it in a way that makes it meaningful for them. And if, if it checks those two boxes, it's probably moving in the right direction. Uh, but even with that, I think we've got to have that question about... Um, you know, equity and, and what's happening at home. I think that that, that really is, is a part of the, the conversation, right? Different kids are not actually having the same opportunities when it comes to homework. And yeah, but anyway, that's, that's kind of where, where my thinking's at right now. And we, we've got we've to gotta really consider that and ask those hard questions. And I think that starts by pointing the finger at ourselves and saying, you know, what, what am I really, what do I really care that, that my kids, the, the kids in my class, what do I really care that they take away? Uh, from from what I'm what I'm doing with them. Well, it's it's interesting too because I think you know as as you kind of delve into that and 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 I pushed one school in particular that was asking some really good questions like how do we do this well I'm like well, just get rid of all of it. And and then there then then the other questions came up of what well, how do we know we're being rigorous or and then how do we know what to grade and how do we know and how do we know and. It seems to me like homework is that bandage that just needs to be pulled off so you can have the deep conversations about what we are actually doing as a school. Absolutely. Uh, and 100% agree with that because I think so often we're, we're using some of these Band-Aid approaches and homework's one of those, right? Where we're kind of honestly propping up shoddy pedagogy by not asking 
harder questions, right? If, if uh, well, our, our friend Daryl DeBoer sometimes talks about the rule of 60, and, and I don't know if he's maybe shared this on the podcast before. I hate to steal his thunder, but you, you should you should talk to Daryl sometime about this too. His, his comment about this is, there's some things we teach students in school that's really 60 minute content, right? It doesn't matter beyond the 60 minutes that they're in class that day. And some of it's 60 day content, right? Where, where it matters until they take a test or until they take a final exam. Um, you know, for 60 days. But some of the content is 60 year content, like the stuff that's going to matter for the rest of their lives. It's going to shape the kind of people they become, not not just, you know, the checking off standards that they're that they're meeting right now in, in my class. But what do we care about? I think that's the broader question. What, what do we what do we really care that students come away having learned? And I think that homework, a lot of times homework is probably 60 minute content, not 60 year content. That, that we're trying to get at with that. And I hope that, that school leaders and, and teachers and parents and whole communities can come together around that and say, what do we, who, who are we trying to shape our students into? What do we want a graduate from our school to be like? Who do we want them to look like? And those kinds of questions probably have different answers than how am I gonna fill my students' time? And am I being rigorous enough? Um, yeah. So, so, and you said, you know, I point the finger at myself and, and trust me, I mean, I could give you tons of student names who would love to tell you about all the things that I did wrong and, and how I oh, was yeah. such a tough, rigorous teacher. And it was because I piled on a lot of unnecessary work. Um, but, but in this time of the pandemic and the shutdown, and when you went virtual, what, maybe give us something that you've learned even about your own teaching you know, and with yeah. university students and then helping those university students become good teachers themselves. Like, is there something that you've even discovered or that's been uh, enlightened and new for you? Yeah, I appreciate that question. Uh, this, this is something I really grappled with. And, and that, that's a concern for us at the university level too, obviously, right? We, I don't want my class to be some lightweight class. I want students to really learn things. And, and so that sense of rigor, um, I mean, that, that's a through line that runs all the way through from pre-K through graduate school. I think everybody wants to be rigorous. But what I uncovered um, as I was working through through the you know emergency remote teaching last spring and now this semester, I'm doing kind of a version of hybrid flexible. I've got students coming in at class. I've got to have really clear learning targets so they know what they should be learning and it helps keep me on track too. Um, a really good learning target helps focus the whole process. Um, it makes my assessment vehicle so much more clear. Uh, it, it ensures that the things that I'm actually doing in class and the things I'm asking students to do, um, that they're all aligned and, and they're all pointing in a particular direction. So starting there, I think being able to very clearly articulate for, for the students. I always try to write learning targets for the students so that they're I can statements. And I try to have a really active verb, right? I can know things. Well, how do you know what they know? I can understand. How do you know what they understand? It has to be something that they actually put into practice. So I can describe, okay, now describe, I can tell if you describe, I can articulate, I can draw a diagram of, I mean, something very you know, specific and measurable that way. I think that's a big part of it. And then the other thing that I started doing um, with emergency remote teaching, but now I've carried this one through, um, every week I've got three moves in, in my teaching practice. I, and, and I think that this one applies, I, I've been using it at the university level, but I think it applies in K-12 all the way through. Um, every week we are going to read some stuff, we're gonna do some stuff, and we're gonna write some stuff. 
and I want them to engage with important texts. Okay, if I use text broadly, right? Sometimes it is reading a textbook. Sometimes it's an article. Um, sometimes it's a video that I want them to watch, but they've got to engage deeply with that. And so I structure something reflective around it, something that they're going to bring um, back to class, whether that's bringing it physically when we're sitting down in the same room together, or if they're uh, zooming in um, to class, that they're going to bring something in response to that reading. And then the do some stuff, well, this is the one that looks different depending on, on the course and depending on the content, but um, it might be um, engaging in a small group. It might be um, physically building something or modeling something or, or some kind of creative work where they're going to do some stuff. And then the write some stuff, again, that one takes on different shape depending, but a lot of it ends up being very reflective writing that I'm asking students to do. Um, and I love this bit from John Dewey, and I sound like a professor of education when I bring up John Dewey, right? But, uh, but John Dewey, uh, he's famous for advocating for experiential education. If you're not familiar, he was a philosopher of education at the University of Chicago around, uh, around 1900. Um, and he was a proponent for experiential education. Students should be actively involved firsthand in doing things because that's where learning happens. But Dewey's quote is, we do not learn from experience. And this is the advocate for experiential learning. He says, we do not learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on our experiences. And I think that that's gotta be a key part of this whole thing too. And so a lot of the writing I ask my students to do is very reflective writing. That doesn't mean they don't ever do rigorous in air quotes academic writing where I have them writing essays and drawing on sources and things but a lot of times I'm going to ask students to do reflective writing where they're telling stories about their own learning where they're putting themselves in it and explaining so here's what I did and here's what I learned and here's what I took away from this and I think those are the kinds of assignments that start to well personalize learning yeah um, but also that's where it starts to get real and, and it's the stuff that starts to really matter for how students think about themselves as learners too. Well, and it's interesting you talk about reflection because so much of education has been focused in on developing grit, a growth mindset, you know, and then like, you know, even saying failure is okay and we should fail forward and all these types of things. But the research kind of shows us, it, it, you know, the failure or the grit development actually it, it really comes in the reflection of what we discovered and what we learned and what we're going to change moving forward. Um, so let me transition here real quick, because your blog, you, whether it's the most recent or one of the recents, you talk about the golden rule of virtual teaching. Um, oh, yes. You know, so <laughs> can, can you just give, give the listener what that golden rule is? And I'll link to the blog because I love it. But what that is and, 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 and give, us, give us some energy behind like why, that, why to you that's the golden rule. All right, all right. So, so I call it the golden rule for online teaching, right? Uh, so the golden rule, and this shows up in every religion, every world religion in the world, there's some version of it, right? Jesus says this in scripture, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Everybody knows the golden rule. So the golden rule for teaching takes a twist on that, right? If you're gonna be teaching at a distance, the golden rule for teaching at a distance is never ask students to do something you would be uncomfortable doing yourself. Never ask students to do something you'd be uncomfortable doing yourself. So what I mean by that is if we're going to ask students to do some kind of self-disclosure, we should lead by doing that self-disclosure first, right? If you're going to ask students to participate in some particular way, you should be at the forefront. You should be modeling that for your students. Um, if you're going to ask students to do reflective writing, share a sample of your own reflective writing, thinking through what you're grappling with related to, to the content. 
Now, I know that that's going to look different at different grade levels, right? I fully recognize if you're teaching kindergartners versus second graders versus seventh graders versus sophomores, right? of course, it's going to look, it's going to look different for me teaching in higher ed too, right? But to start there, to start by saying, I'm never going to ask students to do something that makes me uncomfortable um, myself, if, if for me personally. So where that happens, like the rubber hits the road for folks who are talking about assessment in particular, I find this is one of those big question marks for a lot of teachers. Like, how do I assess my students learning uh, when we're only uh, interacting online? I get to do some professional development work with, with a couple different um, schools. And, and I had a quote that just floored me when, when I was in one of these sessions this summer. Um, there was a teacher in one of these um, online PD sessions that said, you know, we really don't know where our students are at because as soon as we went to teaching online, we just threw up our hands and said, we can't really do assessment at all. And I mean, I didn't know how to respond to that because like, how can you then prepare for what comes next? How can you know if you've been effective at all in your instruction? Like that, that just blows my mind. But I think that that's part of this too, right? We, we should maybe lead um, with some grace for our students, yes. Um, because we need some grace, right? I know for myself, I need some grace. And so to, to start there and, and to make that like baked into the assessment vehicles that I'm gonna use with my students, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to start with, you know, um, I mean, let me reframe that just a little bit. Um, I wonder if we could think of it in terms of assessment as a blessing for our students. I think a lot of times we, we picture assessment as something we do to students. And I stole this idea from Elaine Brower, who wrote a great article in the Christian Educators Journal way back in like oh, 2007 or something like that, where she talks about assessment as a blessing for, for students. Um, that instead of something that we do to students, it's something that we do with students and for students. And that whole mindset of saying, I'm never going to ask students to do something I'd be uncomfortable with. I, I'm not going to use proctoring software. I, I just find that egregious. I wouldn't want somebody watching me through video for everything that I do. That's not blessing students. That, that's communicating a lack of trust and a lack of care and a lack of concern for, for who they are as unique individuals, right? Um, I'm going to assign work that seems meaningful and valuable and things that give them some voice in what's happening in school because that's blessing students. That's not, um, you know, me mandating particular things. And that's not to say we shouldn't want students to comply and we shouldn't ever mandate particular. Of course, there's, there's times for that, right? But I think that that's maybe a principle to help get teachers who are maybe feeling a little stuck in this, if, if you would maybe reframe that and say, what would you want if you were on the, the, the business end of this as, as a learner, what would you want people to do for you and with you? Um, and maybe start there. That's really hard for teachers though, right? Because it's an issue and oh, we're so yeah. used to like control, right? Not just control of the classroom, control of ourselves and our image and our expectations. So there's control. Uh, there's huge trust, like me to my students, students to me. And then there's a deep sense of vulnerability that like when I put myself out there, I don't look like a crazy person or like incompetent, even in this own work that I'm trying to move my students along. So, so when you work with a teacher who maybe gets that point, and I can be an incredibly impatient person at times. And so my friends laugh at me, right? That person who just kind of throws up their hands and says, yeah, I, I got nothing. And it's like, really, seriously, you got nothing? Like, so how do you encourage people or what are the 
the steps that you can take with somebody who's just deeply frustrated in our time right now. And, and to be able to say, hey, you know what? Take that next step. Take that next step. Go further than you think you, you can go, especially relinquishing control, developing trust, and, and being vulnerable. Well, I really appreciate what you said there, because I think that trust is um, essential for this, right? Like we, we have to be able to trust that our students are going to do the work, right? And I think that that's often what drives us then. I, I'm pointing the finger at myself here again. What drives me is a fear that somehow students are going to break that trust. Uh, if, if I can't trust my students, how, how can I actually move forward with them, right? So I think that that's maybe a place where taking some small risks um, in, in ways that maybe feel a little less consequential, right? Like if, if and I'll just keep picking on assessments since that's where I was, where I was going with this. Um, maybe this is a place where, uh, and I, I would never say just throw the doors open and let students do whatever they want, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying here is let's think about reasonable choices that you might give to students, right? To, to start moving them in a direction where we're going to try to extend a little bit of trust to them. And hopefully that's going to foster some goodwill from the students and they're gonna see that we're all in this together. So maybe instead of assigning them a particular um, writing assignment, maybe, maybe you can give them a couple of options, right? Maybe they could write it or maybe they could record a video of themselves if they would feel more comfortable doing that. Now that's a very small, twist. It's a very small tweak to, to an assignment, right? Whether students write it or whether they record a video. If the assignment, if, if the learning target isn't that you have to write an essay, could they do something else to demonstrate their learning? Maybe they could just record the video of themselves talking things through instead, right? Um, so something even like that, giving, giving just a little bit of freedom for the students to put a, give them some, some voice in, in how their, their learning is, is going to happen. Um, or demonstrating their learning that way. Um, we, we do this sometimes uh, as teachers already, right? Like we give students options for, if you're gonna have students do a research project and you have like a whole menu of choices for different things that they could choose among for, for time. Okay, so maybe we could even push that idea a little bit further then, right? If you're already giving students some choices like that, um, maybe, maybe you could even broaden that circle just a little bit to say, um, so let's also talk about how you're going to learn about that topic, right? And instead of me being the one to mandate all the resources that they're going to draw from. Now, again, at different grade levels, this will look different, obviously, right? But if you're teaching middle schoolers or high schoolers, let's let's teach them how to do um, evaluation of sources that they're drawing from. Instead of me just always curating a list of sources for students to read, what if we could, you know, encourage them to be the ones to develop things to read? And maybe for you as a teacher, then before you'd share that out to the whole class or something, you'd want to do some vetting, of course, in that process, right? Um, but anyway, those those are the kinds of things I think we can start making some small shifts in our practice that start to bring teachers along and start to really encourage them um, to, yeah, to be able to be a blessing to their students that way. So, well, maybe a couple more questions, but... Um... One of the things I'm wondering about, especially with this pandemic, with COVID, you know, the move to virtual, and you've done a ton of stuff. You know, I've I've, I've seen you out there writing, but then also working with teachers. And um, is it really a shift in how we do things um, in education in schools? Is it, or is it just you know what a bump along, bump along the way? And you know what, you know, a year from now, two years from now, we're going to go into schools and it's going to look the exact same as it did in, in 2019, the fall of 2019. 
Um, yeah. What do you think? Uh, this is this is the, the dangerous part, trying to <laughs> prognosticate uh, what, what we cannot yet see, right? Uh, I guess the cynical side of me says, I, I don't see a lot of schools really taking advantage of, of this. And, and I wanna be very kind as I say that. And, and like, I think it's unrealistic to expect that we're suddenly going to upend everything we've been doing for the last hundred years in education uh, over six months time, right? I, I don't think that's realistic. But I do think we have an opportunity to ask some questions about the way we've always done things, so to speak. And to start wondering, like, okay, so we have to do some of these things now, right? In, in order to ensure that our students remain healthy. Um, yeah, there's, there's changes that we have to make. But are there opportunities that we have um, that we could maybe develop some new skills that are going to continue into the future? I, I don't know exactly what that looks like yet. Um, you know, the, my, my field is educational technology. The, the, the thing that I've studied the most and, and the thing that I write a lot about um, oftentimes is in educational technology. I, I think it's hard for us to forecast out, um, you know, what, what are things going to look like 10 years from now? Well, boy, I, I have, have ideas of what it might look like, but I'm almost always going to fail in making those kinds of predictions. It's hard to predict two years out, honestly, in the ed tech world, what things are going to look like. Um, but yeah, I think there are a lot of teachers who are learning new skills. Well, the way I've said it before is this, okay? Um, I think one of the struggles that, that a lot of teachers had, especially in the emergency remote teaching phase last, last spring, we were not equipped for this. We were prepared for teaching in a face-to-face -face classroom. We have practiced teaching in a face-to-face -face classroom. We have been resourced and equipped for teaching in a face-to-face -face classroom. And we suddenly found ourselves thrust into a new classroom environment. And there's a lot of things that are very similar if you're teaching online or teaching face-to-face. -face. A lot of things are very similar, but it is a different learning environment. And I can say that from my own experience, just teaching here on our campus, okay? I teach introduction to education. I have taught that course in at least six different classrooms in the years that I've, I've taught here uh, at Dort. And the course, even if I try to teach it the same, you know, using the same teaching moves, just being in a different classroom affects the way that the course unfolds because sometimes I'm teaching it in more of a lecture hall kind of a room or sometimes I'm teaching in a room with tables where I've got six students sitting around a table facing each other. Boy, I mean, the, the moves that you can use, the classroom geography changes the kinds of things, right? And so this is an even more pronounced version of that. When we're teaching in a fully online environment, there are some things that are very possible all of a sudden that weren't really possible before, but there are some real constraints too. And I think a lot of teachers kind of felt that pinch and are, are continuing to feel that pinch um, as, as they're learning new skills and, and trying new things. Um, and I guess that would be one of my big encouragements for, for educators out there who might be listening in on this. I'm giving you permission. I'm giving you permission to play, right? The permission to explore and experiment. Um, to take some small risks, not that you're going to upend the apple, you know, upset the apple cart and throw everything out uh, that you've done in the past. No, of course not that. But try something new. Um, you know, collaborate with a colleague. Um, learn a new piece of technology that you think you, you've heard something about from from a colleague, and see you know, how could I use that? Could I use that? Would that benefit my students' learning? Um, maybe start tapping into some new resources because you've got a whole internet full of things out there for, for your students potentially, right? Maybe, maybe there's something new that you have the opportunity to do. So yeah, not trying to silver lining this whole pandemic situation. That, that's unrealistic too, right? Like this is hard. Let, let's not kid ourselves. This is hard. It's, it's hard for everybody, for, for teachers, for administrators, for students, for sure, for parents. And this is hard. But are there things that we could capitalize, even though we're going through this hard time, that uh, we might 
be able to shift some things in education that we never even dreamed about before. So let me ask this last question then, um, because it's, it's, it's a question and a conversation that I've had, I think, too much in the last couple of weeks with either brand new teachers that I know or potential future teachers that have called me and said, I don't think I can do this. Mm-hmm. Right. You know what, what I signed up for, what I love to do, what I want to do. This is not it. Um, and I even had this conversation with somebody else who loves our profession and, you know, we were kind of taking a look back, you know, at the multiple decades that we've been in this profession. And, you know, it was even that conversation of would we encourage somebody to follow in our footpaths? And I say yes. And, and those were interesting conversations. But you, you deal with college students all the time who are in teacher prep program at, at a great place like Dort. Like, how do you keep people encouraged and excited to do the hard things in these times of uncertainty? Uh, that I think is the key question, right? Um, and so I very much think about the work we do as educators as a calling, right? And, and that maybe sounds cliche and, and kind of trite, but I think like this, this is where the rubber hits the road for, for us, right? We get to do this. We get to have a hand in shaping who our students become, who they grow into. And I don't think we can take that lightly, right? This, this work is way too hard to think of it as just a job for a paycheck because we're not getting paid enough for, for the things that we're doing. But if we can take that broader view, um, and, and I, I love uh, Frederick Buchner's uh, quote about calling for, for this, right? So what he says is the place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, right? So what has God given you? What has God gifted you with? What has he equipped you with? What gives you joy? Where do you see the broken places in the world? And then look for places where those things can come together. And this is the thing I, I talk with a lot uh, about with a lot with my students, um, especially these first year students taking intro to ed to get them thinking about, yeah, like God has equipped me and prepared me for things. And does that mean it's easy? No, no, it's not, it's not easy, right? This is hard work, but it's good work. And, and we get to do this. We, we get to do this. God equips us for the things he calls us to do. And, and so that's my, my big encouragement, I think, for, for people who are grappling with whether teaching is for them, you know, to, to take that broader view of the impact that we have and to not take that lightly. We get to do this. Dave, appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy. Uh, it's always good to visit you, my friend. <laughs>